he got out and thought I was in the car because the car was upside down and was like, shit, I had no idea where he is. I definitely let that accident define me and define who I was for way too long. When you are letting something like that define you and you have your own sort of pity party on a daily basis and you basically become a permanent victim. Older people tend to call it Kenya. And, you know, I grew up always calling it Kenya. And I don't really, yeah, I suppose I don't really know where it came from. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about how you grew up. Yes. Um, born in Kenya, went to prep school in kindergarten and prep school there. Came over here for boarding school from sort of 12, 13. I then did my undergrad at... Oh, I then took a year out. Classic. Uh, then did my undergrad, which took four years at Durham, because I had a year out in the middle. And then did a master's at Sirencester in real estate. And then went to Bristol and worked for five, for the first five years of my adult life. Great. Yeah. Um. You've just skipped over <laughs> Okay, so going back to Kenya. Yeah, going back to Kenya. How did you end up there? Because I heard in that other podcast thing you did, you talk about getting only getting a Kenyan passport recently. Yes. Um, So I was born in Kenya. My folks met out there. Um, I'm the eldest of three. My dad didn't have his Kenyan citizenship when I was born. But also, more importantly, if you are a, if you were Kenyan, you were not allowed to have dual citizenship um, at the point that I was born. And now they've changed that rule maybe 10 years ago. Um, but naturally, we, I say we, my folks decided it was more beneficial for us to have a British passport um, rather than a Kenyan one. And were they both from here, from yeah. England originally? Yeah, both both from UK. Um, Dad went out. He went to South Africa on a cattle ship on his sort of gap year, did a couple of jobs up the coast, came back to UK to do some um, surveying exams, then took a job in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. And then about six months later was offered a job in Nairobi setting up the office for the company that he worked for in Tanzania. Um, and, yeah. Um, what do you mean left. he went on a cattle ship? So he was at agricultural college um, and he got a job with 20 herd of Hereford cattle transporting them on a ship. So he was the foreman, basically. Looking after the cows. Transport, trans- Tra- transporting them on a ship. Trans- <laughs> yeah. Transporting them from England. From England to South Africa, to Cape Town. Where they would... Where they were... Them, or... Where I guess they were... Them. I guess they were sold. Sold for beef, perhaps. Or, you know, maybe there were bulls and heifers in there. So some of them would have been sold to make little calves because they like veal. Yeah. Um... 
that part of the story, I never found out why the cows were going there, but I guess they were just transported there. And then what was his business in Nairobi? Yeah. So he he did property and then he... So he was working for another property firm and then after a few years set up on his own in Nairobi um, and met and mum as he... He did a lot of um, scuba diving. He was a scuba dive instructor. And he actually, as part of the Nairobi Dive Club, he taught mum how to scuba dive. Cool. And that's how they met. And then mum went out with, um, she took a two-year posting with Coopers and Lieband, now PwC. And yeah, similar thing. Stayed ever since. And they both just loved living in Kenya. Yeah, yeah. Dad was definitely more sort of Kenyan than British. So he had to give up his British citizenship to become a Kenyan. Whereas uh, mum didn't and she... That was sort of, yeah. I think she always wanted the security of of England or UK because you never know when something like Zimbabwe might happen in Kenya. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately which refers to i have have i had one of them on the podcast i have a few zimbabwean friends actually the um girl who used to live here and she somehow they managed to keep their land so her family still has their farm but another friend i have they were yeah because it's basically if you're not native you can't keep the land so my friend's farm it was like people came with machetes and it was like you have to leave yeah i think a lot of people got basically fundamentally kicked out and had to start new lives somewhere um which must have been pretty savage actually um and i think mum always thought that would there was a potential of that happening in kenya probably less so now she's yeah she's got her she has her kenyan passport and, you know, it's po- probably modern enough that something like that is quite unlikely. But then if you look at what happened in Sudan and literally no one saw that coming at all. Yeah. Um, and that's what, like a month old, if that. So that's the current situation, like two militia groups fighting against each other? something like that i don't i don't know the full details i just know that they're doing their best to evacuate sort of diplomats and and citizens yeah of of sort of you know all countries who have citizens there and because that's not far away from kenya no not really it sort of if you look at kenya it's sort of in the top left if you're looking at it if you're looking at the map um yeah. And what do you think drew your parents to Kenya? Like they just had a sense of adventure, or uh, what did they love about it that made them stay? Um. So Dad always loved. He loved his time in South Africa and always wanted to try to go back there. Um, and took the job in Tanzania because it was the next best thing. And he took that job in Tanzania with the intention of then going to South Africa after. But actually, as it happens, he 
he then found, yeah, he, he was moved up to Nairobi and absolutely loved Kenya. And I think for him, it was the freedom of Kenya and the lack of, um, you know, the the lack of sort of control on on at times minor aspects of one's life. Um, like he loved that you could go on safari basically anywhere in the country and if you got yourself in some sort of you know if you got yourself stuck or something or you had a breakdown you know that could well be that could well be you done and he I think he had a lot of he liked to be self-sufficient I think um so uh, and yeah and and loved the lack of sort of overly officious controls on on elements of of his people's life and it's a it is a great place to raise kids and with mum I think I actually know the details but I know she went out in theory on a two-year posting um and I think then met dad and they then, yeah, set up a life. Um, had me and my brother, um, and then my sister popped along, a couple of years, a couple of years later. And what was growing up there like? I had a feeling you were going to ask me this. <laughs> That's what the name of the podcast yeah. is. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it was the only place I grew up, so. <laughs> I thought it was pretty amazing. I mean, you definitely, it's very, yeah, it's very active. You know, we were fortunate enough to grow up with quite a nice big garden. Um, you were in Nairobi? Yeah, just on the outskirts of Nairobi. Um, and yeah, you coming home and the weather's beautiful, you're we playing sport, doing whatever. Um and just being active, you know, we had horses, which I didn't really, I didn't really ride, but my brother and sister and mum did. I did occasionally. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it was just a fantastic place to grow up. You know, both parents could work. Um, Childcare there is, is cheaper than, than having one parent not work. And yeah, I think it's yeah pretty amazing place to grow up. And then you you're going on your long weekends, you know, or or half term. You're going on safari to some just amazing, amazing places, and seeing stuff that you sort of probably grow you probably grow up slightly taking for granted. But when you look back on that, you thought you know you're thinking. You know, shit. That was that was yeah. My lad's first. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you know that was amazing. You know some of the places we stayed at. You know what some of the stuff we used to get up to. Like what? In terms of. You know, we would go say we'd go to the coast. We'd drive the boat down to the coast. At us, we had a ski boat. And yeah, just days on the creek getting sunburnt, water skiing, wakeboarding, 
and just yeah just being active and I think my folks used to run a lot as did my brother and sister I was less keen growing up I didn't really used to run and I used to always because I was a bit tubby as a kid I used to always find an excuse why I shouldn't run um that was when we were at school anyway and then and now of course you run ultras and stuff like that yeah yeah now now and yeah now I I do run quite a bit but I, I think you know possibly that is something that I that probably applies to a lot of people in that I didn't run back then because I was being told to or made to and actually now that it is on my own back and I am sort of solely responsible for my own sort of physical and mental well-being that I do run as much as I do um because yeah no one's making me do it but actually I know the benefits of it if that makes sense um okay and how old were you when you came to England um I think I 12 13 just turned 13 um and I that was yeah that was quite weird um we were in a, at school in Cheltenham which again was I feel very lucky to have been in that sort of environment they were I think when it came to school selection it was they you know my folks didn't want a school where there were lots of weekly borders and you would get to the weekends and everyone would just go home and you know the Kenyans or, or the South Africans would just be left there twiddling their thumbs and they were very keen in particularly the first two terms that you you couldn't you know you were a full border which meant you didn't leave until the exit um, which I think definitely helped in terms of you know, building up those relationships with people that that I'm sort of still friends with to this day. And so how different was it to your school in Kenya? Like, what was school in Kenya like? Um, so school in Kenya... Yeah. Again, looking back, I loved it because I loved, you know, the sport. Um, I also played a lot of music and school in Kenya was definitely different because it was, they, they had a rule that the school board had a rule that it was basically no year could get to, um, you know, you couldn't have, you couldn't have full of white people in one year. You basically had to be effectively a third um, Mzungus or um, whiteies, a third Asians and a third Africans and I think that helped me growing up big time because when I came to UK you know I was at a public school in sort of the Cotswolds and it was probably a lot less diverse but actually having grown up there you know with 
yeah, having grown up there and being exposed to that, you are you see things from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Public school, by the way, for the audience, means a posh English school. Private, that you private pay fee-paying school because <laughs> yeah. so many because yeah Americans and now Australians say like public when they mean a state school yeah. and I'm like ah oh, so confusing okay so huh so was your school in Kenya like an expat school it wasn't it wasn't international school so they did I think from memory there were six or. I would say less than 10 other sort of international schools that we used to play on the school circuit. And you would sort of get to know those people, you know, from those schools. And you would also... Because ultimately, when it came to their next education, a lot of them came to UK for school. And you... Yeah. So you'd have a much bigger sort of friendship base back home. Um, than I think other than I think possibly some of my mates did at school. So is the is the expat or like international community like quite separate in Nairobi, or it's like a bubble where because um, it's yeah because the Zimbabweans I know it seems like everyone kind of knows each other. Yeah, you you, you sort of do. There are that Kenyan society is very, um, very sort of, and by Kenyan society, I mean predominantly, you know, Mazungus, they tend to be quite parochial, quite sort of tribal. So you maybe would be less friendly and less to a, and, and, and this time period is sort of, you're probably talking from, well, sort of from 18 onwards. Whereas at school, you were just, it was all, you know, at school and after school, when we'd go back in the holidays, it was all just, you're, you're mates with everyone uh, and everyone's friendly to each other. And, and, you're, and you're all going through that shared sense of, you go away from home for two months, it's cold, it's raining, and then you come back. Um but I think back to that point that, you know, I do think, you know, Kenyan society can be quite sort of tribal in terms of the sort of white community. Mainly, partially, possibly because they're not going to make an effort with someone they know is going to be there for only a year or two years. But then possibly also there is... Yeah, there's an element of proving yourself to be more Kenyan than the than the other people, and yeah, I know, I know Kenyans can definitely be very standoffish. Um, as in when I go back now, mm-hmm. um, which is fine. It's not something that keeps me awake at night. So, did you enjoy, um? school in England or it was a bit of a adjustment the first I'd say the first couple of terms were definitely an adjustment but after that 
I absolutely loved it because you you're playing you're playing sport on a Tuesday, a Thursday. Sometimes you have a run around practice on a Friday, and then you have, and then you have games on a Saturday, and sometimes you also have midweek games. Just I think one of the things that took a while to get used to is after school is not having the availability of sport. What were you playing? Um, everything from sort of tennis to tennis, you know, this the sort of the standard ones, cricket, tennis, sorry, cricket, hockey, rugby. Um, hockey was probably the one I excelled at most at school and which is why I chose Durham because they had a really good hockey team um, and good facilities and that was behind my yeah choice but it was anything you know you're basically you're in a house with 70 blokes your age and so you know you come back at break you're playing sport you in the evenings you're playing touch rugby in the summer you're playing cricket or tennis in there and it's just yeah i mean i loved it and i would i would definitely do everything i could to send to for my own kids to have that sort of experience right so durham yeah no wait what did you do in your gap year I took a took a late decision, so I got to. I think it was. Yeah, I took took a late decision to have one, so I got to the August that I was due to. You know, I was basically due to fly to Leeds, um, well, London, and then Leeds to start in September. And I just emailed them and said. I wanted to ferry it, and then the next day I said. Yeah, uh, I actually want to cancel my place. And so I didn't really have any plans at all. So I did come back on that flight that I was due to. Um, I worked in a book packing factory for sort of three months um, to try raise some capital. Whereabouts? Uh, that was in Winchcombe. Wait, why? So why did you want to... You wanted to completely... Not go to Durham at all. No, I was initially supposed to go to Leeds. Oh, and got there it, was got it. there was a yeah. I mean, there was a couple of things, that, and mum, my mum definitely helped in that decision. You know, in that if she was like, if you don't want to go to uni, just take a year out. You don't have to rush anything. And also, there was a part of me that was that thought maybe I can do slightly better than Leeds. Um, they have a sand no astroturf. No offense to anyone Leeds. who went to Leeds. But it was mainly the sand astroturf. Um, whereas As opposed to? A water-based one. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Yeah. Wait, so you could do better in terms of the hockey team? Yeah. Or... Yeah, got it, got and better it. in terms of the hockey team, better in terms, you know, possibly better academically. And, yeah, uh, and actually what I think I really wanted was a year to... A year to not be in education. Yeah, so I didn't really have any plans. I did three months work, 
went back to Kenya at Christmas, had a couple of mates, you know, come out and visit, did some very much shoestring trips in and around Kenya, and then was sort of doing some work in Kenya, I think, and then did, yeah, came skiing and then went traveling for, went skiing and then went traveling for like three, four months or something. Where did you go? Um, so I did the, yeah, did the classic um, sort of Thailand, Laos, Vietnam. Didn't go to Cambodia, came back to Thailand, went to Malaysia, um, did Indonesia down to, um, yeah, did Indonesia down to Bali um, because by that point I was traveling on my own and I did Indonesia on my own, met some mates who had started university and were on their summer break, met them in Bali and always had the plan to go to Australia went to Australia probably 15 20 kilos overweight you know tanned very relaxed <laughs> arrived in Perth at you know 1am and it was in June or July and it was about two degrees and I was so confused because I'd just been in Asia for three months or whatever island hopping you know wearing wearing those singer wife beater tops you know finding myself as it were and yeah just that was a shock so I only lasted a w- less than a week there and I flew to New Zealand instead and did some of North Island for about three weeks and then came back to Kenya actually I forgot that I did something else I met some some mates came out and we did do an overland as in public traveling by public transport down to Zimbabwe, so Tanzania, Zanzibar, um, Malawi, Zambia, to Zimbabwe, and they then carried on to South Africa, and I came back to go skiing. Yes, I suppose I did quite a lot. Any soul searching, or mainly just partying? Um. I, I think, mean, you're so young at that point. It's like yeah, exactly. And I don't think you can do any. You, I don't think you can do any soul searching really. If you're twenty, twenty-one, you don't really know who you are. I think your identity at at that age. When I look back on it, I was. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely a little bit wilder than I am now, but. Yeah, it's probably the sort of person that if you met, you'd be like, oh, God, guy's a bit of a dick. <laughs> because I was quite loud and arrogant um, and brash. Arrogant in what? Did you think you were really good or it was like insecurity? No, I was uh, probably I was just very confident and, yeah, I guess it's the main thing, confident and wild and I... Suppose at times didn't ever like when 
sort of there was an element of rebelling against authority to a certain extent when in reality I wasn't really at all I just had really long hair a pretty good tan and really did quite like having shots and beers so like standard posh yeah. person goes when I can't feel yeah. stuff yeah, exactly. <laughs> long yeah, very long blonde hair um Okay, so then you end up getting into Durham and yep. going there. It took me about a year to, yeah, get a, got into Durham. That was all. That was all good. Um, I guess it maybe took me a year to find my feet as a student. Um, like a lot of people, I wasn't particularly. Um, I wasn't particularly driven from an academic point of view um what were you focused on you just wanted to play hockey and yeah play hockey and also have a great social life so you know be the life and soul of the party um and also play hockey and then yeah so first year Went by in a flash. I had to come back for a retake, which I did on my birthday. What were you studying? Um, I did biology. Um, yeah, so I had that retake on my birthday. And then after first year, worked. <laughs> that was quite. That was a good memory. Um, worked on a an apple and hop farm in Kent. Um living in a tiny caravan that was just one of those old caravans that you see on, on, on in farmyards. Um, Where did these random job ideas come from? Was this, did your parents kind of instill this in you to, or were you just motivated to make money for yourself? Or No, I don't think my parents did instill, well, they they were probably more the driving force behind a lot of that. Because, you know, they, I mean, it got to my birthday or whatever, and they were like, right, well, you're not coming back out. Term doesn't start for another six six weeks. You need to go and get a job. And one of my dad's mates who, from Siren, um, was a farmer in Kent. And he, yeah, so he took me in with the, I worked with a lot of Czech um and Polish people on an apple and hot farm as a fruit picker. Did you like it? It was good fun. It was hard work. I I was sort of a mixture of picking the fruit and also driving the tractor. Um, I think I probably preferred driving the tractor because that that was my first experience of commission based work. I think we used to get. Eight pounds for a full box of apples, and these boxes are—they're wooden crates. And if one is full, you need a—you need a tractor to lift it up. So that was my first um, introduction into, you know, working, killing what you eat, as it were, and working hard and seeing the results of it. I don't think I did work probably that hard. Um, 
but I suppose it's all all experience. Okay, so then second year, so that's in the summer between first yeah. and second. Yeah, year. so that's summer between first and second year. Second year comes around. I sort of know I need to get. Um. I knew I needed to get a. You know, start cracking down more with work. As it happens, I had quite a good first term in hockey, and I was pushing for the for you know the first team. And then one late one night on a Thursday night, we used to train eight till night eight sorry eight till ten um, in Durham. And I think it was either December or January, one late night training session, I was sprinting for a ball and, yeah, tore my hamstring. Um, So that was that. And I think I possibly went a little bit... I didn't realise it at the time, but but I do now, in terms of how I react to certain things I probably started drinking quite a bit more and as a result of not being able to run and stuff because I think I had two months off maybe so I missed a lot of hockey because then when I came back I I developed I think I may have developed um, compartment syndrome or something in my calves so I missed a lot of that season and then it came to, yeah, then it came to the summer and I was, hamstring was all good. I was still a little, yeah, I mean, looking back on it, I was still, still quite wild. Um, I remember a couple of weeks, we're in about July, which is in a couple of weeks before my car accident, I heard basically was on the side of a car while while the car was driving at speed in a field and was sort of thrown off through a thorn bush. And back then you just get up and dust yourself off. But actually looking back on it you think that was probably a little bit silly. What do you mean you're on the side of the car? Hanging onto the side of the car. So like not in the car but hanging onto like the onto the roof racks or something. Yeah. Um where was the field? This was near Naivasha, which is near where we live now. In Kenya? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is when you gone home? Yeah. For the summer? Yeah, so I then went, went back home for the summer. Um, we then... We then went to the coast. Like we, we, we always used to go to Otami in August. Your um, family? Yeah. And we'd usually rent a house... Um, there with another family um it was a nice quite basic five bed um cottage well bungalow but it was like 30 meters from the beach um anyway we had driven down and i think it was the first night or the second night was when i had my yeah that was when i had my car accident and then from there, my my life definitely 
changed quite a bit. Um, what, so, what happened in the accident? Um, so essentially, it had rained earlier in the day, and I got and I was going too fast. I got to the end of the tarmac, and where it had rained, it was about two and a half foot lower than because it was onto sand and coral. Um, it was about two and a half foot lower than the tarmac. So I went over the edge, um, yeah, over the edge of that, lost control. I was fortunate or, or unfortunate, I think fortunate that I was knocked out pretty soon after. I think pretty much straight away I was knocked out because I only broke, I think I only broke one bone. So I was then thrown out the car as it rolled quite a few, I mean, it rolled quite a few times. It, I wouldn't know how many, I'm afraid. Um, but, yeah, and then... Was it just you in the car? Yeah. And where are you going? Um, I was going to the end of the... Basically going down the tarmac to the end of the tarmac. To the beach? No, what's at the end of the tarmac? I think we we're going to a friend's house or something. Oh, as in the road? Yeah, yeah. It's a road. It's a, yeah, it's a metal it's road that goes parallel road. to the tarmac. The, parallel to the beach, sorry. And it's like an you know, from from that road you access the beach. Okay. Yeah. And you were just meeting people somewhere? Uh yeah. Um And there was no one else. Yeah, okay. but I mean yeah, there was someone behind me. Um I mean it yeah, to be honest, I was actually racing someone. Um, which is probably why I was going too fast. Um, anyway, he was then behind me, and he got out and tried to. He got out, and tried to, thought I was in the car because the car was upside down, and was like shit. I no idea where he is, um, which I which I imagine would would have been pretty pretty traumatic for a, you know, twenty year old, um, to have a watched that and then not be able to find his mate that was in the car. How did you end up out of the car? Because the wind... Yeah, that's one of it's one of life's great mysteries, whether... Were you wearing a seatbelt? This, this is something I've sort of, you know, wrestled with a lot because I always instinctively put a seatbelt on. But had I put a seatbelt on on the seatbelt you know stayed on then i would have definitely yeah i would have definitely died because the roof was about a foot above the passenger seat um, and also upside down and given i was unconscious i think it would have been not sure how i would have gotten up um but was it your car it was dad's car um, that he had, yeah, he had lent to us, um, because we had driven down the day before or something. Got it. Okay, so your friend, so obviously you have no mem. Your last memory is. I remember a bit of the day. I remember that day. I had probably one of the best kite surfs I have ever had. And it was with my brother, and we went four kilometres right out on the reef, which is about a kilometre off the beach. And we did all the way from the end 
from the from the end of the beach and the opening to a creek to where we were staying, which is about four kilometers. I remember I remember seeing turtles that day, um, but then apart from that, yeah, I don't remember that much. So, do you remember the drive at all? No, no, not at all. So you just know now from people, yeah, telling you what yeah. happened. Yeah. Um. Yeah, because then I was, I was probably on because I was taken to a couple of different, well, three different hospitals. Because there isn't, it's quite a sort of sleepy seaside town where it was, and you know they had to go to different hospitals to get um, the right help. Yeah, to what? get MRI and X-ray and some and stuff like that. So how? Sorry, I cut you off before. How did your friend find you? Um, I don't know. I mean, I was on the other side of the road, sort of next to a piece of coral. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I... but he eventually found you and then called an ambulance. Or there wasn't any signal where it was, so he went back to the, you know, to a bar where a lot of people were, and, um, yeah, and he, you know, got people back down, and then they went to get my folks, and and you're just unconscious on the side of the road. Yeah, um, and then I was then in a couple of the hospitals I was taken to in Malindi, and then I stayed there overnight and was flown back to Nairobi the next day by air ambulance. Um, and you were unconscious this whole time? I think so, possibly, possibly slightly, but by the time I got to by the time I got to Nairobi, I was induced, um, well, like in an induced coma, but uncon- sorry, unconscious rather than in an induced coma. So they had put me to sleep, as it were. Um, but then I didn't wake up from that for another 10 days, I think, or something. So what's your next memory, like, from seeing the turtles or to then? Um, I remember being in hospital. I have, I had a boot on my foot. Um, because I did break one bone in my foot, but I remember, um, I remember I used well, I used to be a bit of a nightmare. Um, I remember I used to always take my drips out, um, and so I do remember doing that. Why? I don't really know. I think you become quite infantile when you're sort of reduced to a, um sort of a brain injury wreck as it were um maybe there was a an instinct to to try and get out but yeah um i do remember i i used to take my um yeah i used to take my things out or not yeah and then i was there for about three weeks maybe um came over to and then flown over as a stretch case on KLM, which means you're yeah lying on a stretcher on the sort of over the seats, um, and then went to the John Radcliffe in Oxford because part of the when I was thrown out of the car I was I had a sort of wound I think I'd landed on a stick or a branch, and 
I had quite a severe laceration to the top of my leg, which they thought maybe would be uh, could lead to a burn infection. Um, so I went to the John Radcliffe to a specialist unit there, and then they decided after maybe two weeks, not that I remember, that actually the, the real importance was treating the main head injury. So I went to a specialist centre in Frenchay, in Bristol. So at that point, could you... Like, how was the brain injury affecting you at that point? Oh, by that point, I was pretty... Um, what's the word? I was like I was like mush, basically. I couldn't really talk. I couldn't throw. I definitely couldn't walk. Um... I think by that point I was no longer on a feeding tube. I de- and well, I can't have been on a feeding tube by the time I went to um, Oxford, but I, I was, um, I wasn't really. I don't think I was independently using the loo. Um, I think I needed to have help with that. Um, and I sort of, I think by that point, so I graded my Zimmer frame every time. Well, not, I just happened to be the hospital. And then in Nairobi, I had one of those very old ones um, because I would have to walk, say, from the bed to the door or something. And I had one of those very old granny ones that have no wheels. And then in French, I had one that had very small wheels. And then in Bristol, I had one of those granny ones that have basically like four by four, <laughs> nice big wheels. Um, yeah. And were your fat? Were did anyone come with you back to England? M- mum did. Dad had to work, um, but mum, yeah, I mean, mum was amazing, and I think that must have been pretty, pretty hard for her. Because she basically worked remotely um, for, for you know, effectively up to three months. Um, back at a time when working remotely was not really a thing. And what was their reaction? Like, were they pissed off? I'm just imagining if it was um, my mum would probably be very pissed off at me. But were, Or was it just like they were just so grateful that you were still alive. I think, yeah. I mean, I think they were both very shocked um, about how that had actually yeah, happened and what had actually happened. And then I don't think it took... I don't think you needed to be very creative when with your with your mind that when you saw me, you would need to... As in... I think it was pretty obvious how serious it was when anyone visited me. Um, but I, yeah, I think they were probably in shock. And what about the friend? Um, again, we were sort of twenty twenty one. He, I think he visited me in hospital once, um, possibly, but. I don't think he ever said anything to dad, um, which I think sort of 
dad found quite odd. Um, like uh, said, like... Yeah, this is what happened, or, you know... Do you think he was just feeling so guilty about it? Um, Maybe a little bit, but I think actually he's, you know, 20, 21. You have no idea what to do in that situation. You do, You have no idea what the right thing is. And even if you have an inclination, you're possibly unlikely to do it because it's easier not to. And having that sort of bombshell moment occur to your, you know, watching it occur, you, I think, yeah. So, I mean, I, I definitely don't, you know, blame him or anything for not saying anything to, to dad. Um, but I, my dad was probably quite old fashioned and sort of felt that was the right thing to do. But equally, if I was in his position, I don't know what the hell I would have done. Did you talk to him? Have you talked to him about it? Um, we sort of drifted a little bit after that. Um, I mean, naturally, I think by virtue of growing up, leaving school, not coming home every holiday. Um, and then obviously, because I then had a year out for my rehab. And by the time I got back to Durham, they were, you know, all the all that crowd, a lot of those crowd were in my year at sort of Newcastle, um, Leeds, that sort of thing. So you'd possibly see them every now and again, but they were they were obviously all gone by then. So you sort of, yeah, I think possibly you know you drift apart a bit. Mm. So what was the recovery like? Um. I think frustrating. Um, Sorry, so you had to leave. You came to England to get better care. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, there are specialist brain injury units and that was sort of the advice. That was definitely the advice that I think all the sort of surgeons were were saying back in Kenya. Um, And... Yeah, so okay, and Bristol was the one that was chosen. You know, we had a little cottage in Cheltenham, and so Mum was sort of commuting from there. Um, and I found it really frustrating because, and I think I didn't realise this for a long time. When you, when you can do something to a certain level, whether it be serving a tennis ball, you know, hitting a hockey ball, hitting a golf ball, whatever it is, when you can't then do that, I think basically back then I was reminded every day how far I had to go. And again, when you, yeah, you know, when you... And it's even done small things. So people asking, oh, I know, you know, do you want to go and play? Should we go and play some touch rugby or, or whatever? And actually you can't, you sort of feel you have to make an excuse. And you also feel that 
you have a worry that that there are people who have met you post-accident who might think you're okay, dandy, normal, but obviously you're nowhere near the ability you were before. And I think that's quite a hard one to... That, I remember that being a difficult one to, to sort of reconcile. Is that still the case now? Much less so, I think. I mean, I still... I think I definitely still get reminded of it. But I used to... Yeah, I mean, I used to think about it every day. Um, you know, and it would... It would sort of... It would... And I think probably also, because I wasn't really being that active back then, it would probably, also, it possibly also led to a lot of, you know, low mood because you sort of, you get stuck in your own mind. You're thinking, shit, what the fuck have I done? You know, I can't, I can't serve, I can't throw, I can't. People, then you worry that you're like, people are going to think I'm such a, I'm mal-coordinated and... You think actually maybe just better not to, maybe just better to, to not get involved. Did you ever feel the urge to tell people like, guys, oh, I'm yeah, actually definitely. an amazing athlete. I just had this fucked up car accident. 100%. Like you would, you know, and and this was one thing my dad said and... He was so right about it because he said, "Right, you've had your, you've had your accident. You're now back at uni. You need to put it behind you and move forward. You're no longer, you know, accident Jack, as it were." And I definitely let that, as in that accident, define me and define who I was for way too long. Um, because it, you know, because then you. Because ultimately, when when you are letting something like that define you, it leads to, oh, why me? And you have your own sort of pity party on a daily basis, and you basically become a permanent victim, which is not in any way beneficial for recovery or even or, or living life. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's obviously completely different but I had a similar thing with depression it like the same like the urge to tell people like oh I used to be really cool I used to be an investment banker and this and whatever and then but then it's (laughs) yeah the victim thing and everything yeah but obviously totally different but I think so many people can relate to that with so many yeah absolutely because you feel the need to justify why you know in my case I wasn't sort of able to play golf the way I was or able to play hockey the way I was and and it was difficult when say for example you would be with a you'd be with a a, you know a group that was a mix of say people from school their mates from uni you're playing a sort of cricket game or something and the people from school remember you as someone who could play cricket 
and yet you know the mates to the mates from uni they don't know you from adam and you 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 clearly can't really play and you actually and that's a big one to to sort of get your head around Mm. um and it must be so frustrating for your body to not be doing what you know yeah it could do yeah and that's most important bit because you can see in your mind's eye you can see yourself doing that and actually that action whether it be you know running with a hockey ball running and dribbling a hockey ball which is you know fundamentally a compound action so not not so you know there are lots of lots of things at play and you see it so clear in your mind you're like Shh, i can do that it's you know i can do it so easy i've done this a million times yet when it comes to it actually you can't and then you miss the ball and you and you kick the ball and you're like and then you feel oh for god's sake what you know what is this um cuz i did i did try and play hockey in my fourth year um you know they asked they did ask me to come back and have a session and i did and i went to one session and i think it comes back to that thing when you've been doing something at a level if you don't do it and you then can't do it at that level you're very unmotivated to want to get back to that level and want to even try and i think particularly when when one is feeling sorry for oneself already like you're a victim like you feel you have to explain what happened and explain how it's impacted you you're not you know you don't have that sort of drive and determination to to sort of say you know what i'm going to give this a real crack and were you okay talking about the accident i think that's the problem i was i was very okay in that i would tell yeah i mean even sort of say two three years after um maybe even yeah i mean let's go with three when i had a i had an ex and one of the things she picked up was like was about the accident and she was like yeah you basically told me the first time we met that you'd had that i was gonna say don't tell me you used it as a pickup line (laughs) I don't think use I I don't think I'd use it as a pickup line. I think I probably was in the mindset that I'm a victim. Feel sorry for me, and which is a very difficult mindset to get out of. But when you see it for what it is, you realise how not yeah how un. non sort of cogent with with living as happy and ultimately successful whatever you define that as living a a happy life if you're always saying you know if you're always thinking oh but i could have been this and that and but then i had my accident and then you remember actually the accident was my own fault I'm lucky in a way, well, I think I'm very lucky in a way, A, that I survived, but B, that it was bad enough that it altered my behaviour. Because I think had it just been, 
had I just walked away with a scratch, I probably would have had a similar accident when I when I, where I wouldn't have been so lucky. And that, yeah, I mean, that's where I look at it now. Actually, you were very lucky. It's also you, you, you learn. You definitely learn a lot about yourself in terms of you know resilience and actually. Well, I can do that because there was I sitting as a 21-year-old in bed, not being able to walk, not really being able to talk, not being able to write. And then, you know, it sort of, yeah, pushes, yeah, pushes you out of your comfort zone, which it sort of has to. Yeah, so going back to that, point how long was that recovery from the point where you couldn't yeah Uh, i'd say over a year about 11 months so i did it was about three weeks in nairobi two weeks perhaps in the john radcliffe and then three months in the brain injury place in frenchy and then i came out that and i did um outpatient like one or two sessions a week in speech and language um physio and occupational therapy i did that for about six months and where were you living then so i I then went back to kenya and tried to after yeah i mean after a while i sort of yeah had a bit of a debrief as it were not doing much and then i decided to get I think I was encouraged to do some work experience. They were like, well, because I sort of thought all of my mates are doing, because I was with, you know, the guys I was living with were relatively, you know, successful guys in that they would, you know, they were head down doing internships in the summer with your big, you know, your big financial institutions. The Durham guys. Yeah. And then I was, I sort of thought, right, I need to, they're all now going into the world, into their careers, and I've not really got anything. So I did a, like a month at a law firm, month at a sort of marketing, market research firm, month with a property firm, and Richard did something else, but. And cognitively, were you fine, or was it? Uh, no. I think information processing was very slow. Um, the the one that was in the lowest percentile was my visual spatial. And that manifested in the way that if I had a wallet or something, and this continued for a long time, if I had, say, a wallet on a table or my wallet on my phone, and it was in my eye line but just out of it, um, then I would forget it because unless I was looking right at it, I yeah my visual spatial awareness was just miles off. Um, so, and then also concentration. Uh, yeah, I mean as I said earlier, hindsight is wonderful, but the best thing to do would have been to split the year into two. And do it in two halves. Because there's no way I was ready to go back to to Durham. I mean, I possibly could have gone back to school 
if that had happened at school, you know, gone back to A level, but you know, you're going back to your final year in a science course at a very good university, like after having a year of doing nothing to do with the course. So how were you doing mentally? Because I in that sweat the silence thing you talk about I think it must be in Bristol seeing like people maybe not making that much progress in you being determined mm. to was that like I need to get out of here so I'm I'm yeah yeah I mean you you definitely in yeah in French eh, in Bristol you it was a pretty demoralizing place to be you know you'd wake up you'd have from memory you'd have wake up you'd have your breakfast it was a pretty simple breakfast and then you'd either do physio or you do neuro language um and sorry speech and language or you do occupational health um and then yeah you'd have your lunch and or have your dinner and go to bed it was a very simple rehab only existence but you would definitely i would definitely see people there and you'd be thinking Particularly when friends came, you'd be thinking, I've got to get out of here because I also really wanted to get out for Christmas. Um, to go back to Kenya, you know, spend time with the family. And did they think that would be possible? Like, did anyone say anything about, was it assumed you would recover or was it like, we don't really know? I think initially they didn't really know. I think by the time I got French A, I mean, I... Yeah, by the time I got to French, I I assume they were relatively confident. Like, I was... It was extended for six weeks, and I, you know, in my infinite wisdom, didn't think it should have been, which left it just before Christmas that I did get out. And... But then I did feel that I was... I felt I had progressed to to a level that I was in a better state to a lot of the other patients. And that was maybe because maybe some of the other patients, and I suppose it's difficult to say this without sounding quite sort of conceited, but maybe the other patients had a lower input level. So they didn't have to get to that sort of final year university level. You know, maybe they were a, Yeah, um, perhaps it was like a sort of you know, forty-year-old plumber from from somewhere, but actually he, yes, but he he doesn't need to get back to a level where he needs to learn new things, new things. Um, yeah, not there's anything wrong with plumbing. No, being but I guess because you're you're also so focused on the physical as well as the mental, whereas like yeah. a pl- a someone it's like, okay, I'm returning to a job I've done for 20 years. I know exactly yeah. like the skills and, and yeah, it's probably not so much pressure on them to get to this peak physical thing. And yeah, the unknown mental challenges of final year uni. Yeah. And it, yeah, I mean, it was definitely because the, because I also, when I went back, I had problems with my vision. I had, obviously, the quite serious 
Um, attention deficit. And... You know, I'm surprised, to be honest, I'm... I was just so desperate to get back. Because I think if I did it again, I would go back, but do it in two years, but also not really drink. Um, because I remember I went back and I was so keen to live this year that I'd missed. Um, that I was possibly a little bit... I was going out a bit too much. And as a result, that could well have delayed my recovery a bit Mm. and how were you what was your mental state like at this point um have i got time to snap to the loo (laughs) yeah All right, Lou break. Ready to keep going? Yes. <laughs> so, we're talking about how you're doing mentally. Yes. Um, like, what was it from the initial when you regained consciousness and everything? I guess it would have just been so much focus on getting better, but was there any, like, you know, 
frustration directed towards yourself? Like, what have you done? Why have you got yourself into this? Um, I think, no. Well, yes, there was. And I think at the time, given... Yeah, I mean, given my quite basic cognitive understanding of certain things like like mental health like uh, and I did do a lot of reading sort of about about brain injury about that sort of stuff but when I look back on it I think I probably assumed I knew a lot but also assumed it didn't at times didn't apply to me um like I remember and possibly and possibly also looking back I think given you know given I possibly spent a bit of time thinking I was a victim and I, I definitely would probably tell anyone who listened which in hindsight was a mistake. But, and maybe I am being too hard on myself because I do remember when I went back into that fifth year house or fourth year house, you know, it was very clear from the outset that I needed, I knew the importance of sleep and it was very clear from the outset that I needed a room at the, at the back because of how important sleep still was to me is it important for the recovery and I think and also this you know my attitude towards it definitely evolved throughout the year because You know, I think when I first got there, I was like, yeah, I'm good, I'm fine. Um, and then... Almost like in denial a bit. Yeah. And then, you know, got to the end where I... I was sort of making my plans for for what I was going to do after Durham. And I looked... Um, and I did have a, I mean, yeah, my exams were a total shit show. Like, looking back on that, I mean, I did that, I had extra time, I did them on computer because I couldn't write. But fundamentally, I shouldn't have been doing them in the first place. So that first year I did, sorry, that first, the first two terms, because I did do some research on myself and on my recovery. So one of the dissertations I did was um, a longitudinal study into the um, physical recovery from acute traumatic brain injury. And like, if I look back on that, yes, you know, great topic. I got some great data and actually, you know, got a first for that. But so much of what I was doing then was 
about the brain injury. If you know what I mean. So, you know, my literature review, I did the effect of brain injury on sleep. And actually, when I look back on it, I think it probably would have been, even though it was a topic that by the end I did know a lot about, and I did at times think, you know what, you should be a neurologist. Neurology is amazing. You know, look at what your body has done. Um, yeah, I think maybe it would have been better to choose a different topic because perhaps that prolonged the, yeah, perhaps that prolonged a bit of the, the, the victim mindset because it's like I'm doing my dissertation and my literature review on traumatic brain injury because it impacts me and I think you know, poor me, and actually, I'm an expert on this. Um, yeah. Well, it's just kind of, it just keeps it at the centre of yeah. your world, rather yeah. than having a distraction of being focused on something else for a bit. Yeah. So rather than focusing a lot more on getting back to, you know, to playing hockey, I did like one session and I was like, nah, stop me. Um, and I did, yeah, I used to go to the gym a lot, did a lot of cycling, um, but actually, I mean, these, these things are all easier said in the, you know, with, with hindsight, but maybe it would have been better to choose to sort of listen to what my dad said and say, actually, genuinely do put it behind you, because I think I had assumed I was like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll put it behind me. And then he, and then in reality, because I was reminded of it every day, it couldn't just be put behind me. Um, yeah, so I think, I think mentally I was probably, Mentally, I was probably I probably thought I was strong and felt strong, but actually, in reality, when you when you open up the sort of open up the bonnet, in reality, I was probably a lot more fragile um, and insecure than than I would admit back then, and that definitely came out in in sort of negative behaviour towards you know, girls in relationships, which was definitely a failure of mine because I wasn't strong enough to be like, actually, you shouldn't be in the this relationship. I, I sort of, at the time, felt I needed company, needed someone to make, yeah, perhaps make me happy. Um... Yeah, which definitely was a mistake and definitely caused ill feeling um, as a direct result of my action. How did those things usually play out? Um, I mean, I was probably quite... I was quite charming back then um, and maybe 
and as a result, I possibly didn't struggle to, and this is not an intentional thing for me to say, I think I'm charming, therefore I will try and, you know, get a girl to have feelings for me. This is me saying with hindsight, actually, you know, you shouldn't have been with anyone because you should have been focusing on yourself and getting, continuing that process towards actually getting properly better, I think. I think you're being pretty hard on yourself. I mean, that stuff just happens anyway in when you're young. and So what, you were kind of... So you obviously didn't lose your confidence in that way that you're like, okay, I can still get attention from women. No, I don't think I did. I mean, I definitely lost a bit of... I definitely became quieter. Um, and I did lose a bit of... that sort of gregarious centre of attention type but I think maybe I needed that to to sort of you know prove to myself that I was still a you know a likable person because actually what happened nearly destroyed you know certainly four people's lives maybe five if you include the mate like if uh, and maybe even others who are those people you know if i told my, my family you know the guy who was there my best mates at the time you know and the you know there's two people in particular who are very who were really really good in hospital i think that sort of thing is when you really see who yeah, you, you really see who's 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 got it and who's actually got your best interests at heart and who isn't just there because they think they should. Um, you know, and my mum always says about two people in particular who are really, really good in in hospital and I'm still mates with both of them now. And, you know, plus, obviously, my... You know, I think my girlfriend at the time had a bit of a tricky time with it. But because we then we then broke up after that year of rehab. Um and that's not something I ever really under no, I I could never I know what it feels like for me to completely lose all my ability. I don't know what it feels like to see someone you love go from a normal speaking person to, you know, lying in a bed with tubes popping out, not really able to speak, not really able to throw a ball, looking a little bit. I also had slight paralysis on one side of my face. So I couldn't really smile on one side. And yeah, that must have been quite yeah, that must have been quite tricky. Um, to be honest. 
and and then if we sort of move forward you use yeah you use all of that to really remember yourself to really remind yourself that actually you know I this I can do I knew a lot more than I than I thought possible because I've been in that position that a lot of my friends will not be in will never be in and that position of having everything you take physically and mentally for granted literally erased at you know at the at the snap of of someone's fingers and so i sort of thought i can keep on keep on with my recovery because i think you know in answer to your earlier question when did they say that i would get better i think maybe they said it would be at least sort of five years um maybe up to 10 for a full recovery um and i still want to I guess the thing is, now that it, it's been time, it's very, I get a lot of older, not not necessarily always older, but I get a lot of people who were there at the time and have not really been able to express how, you know, fucking shocking and almost tragic it was, saying to me, a, how lucky I am and I think it's still there's possibly a couple of, you know a couple of people that there are elements that still affects them if um, not on a day-to-day basis but actually when you when I think of actually what happened and actually you know that process of having the people visit me in in Nairobi Hospital. I mean, I was due to have, you know, a big 21st with, with one of my best mates. Like, it, in that sort of Christmas a few months later, because it was like 10 days before I turned 21. And, yeah, I mean, I think that is... I definitely know that it, that day wasn't my day to go and actually I'm I'm so lucky for so many reasons the, one is, the ones I said earlier I'm lucky that it was bad enough that it sufficiently altered my behaviour in other situations like that and I'm lucky that I actually survived because there are lots of people in that sort of you know growing up in Kenya who either have the roads are not safe there so you know who've either had you know mates who are killed parents you know siblings I mean it's so I definitely know I'm lucky in that point of view yeah and how does this go back to what we were talking about with 
then being at Durham and the con- and the using relationships. Because I think if I look back on it, I think I I had lost a massive part of my identity, which was the ability to play sport at a good level. You know, a level above most other people, and a distinctly above average, and so maybe I had to. And yeah, maybe I needed something to fill that gap. And also, I had, you know, at the start of term, had just broken up with a girlfriend I'd had for about three years. And was she from Kenya? Yeah, and yeah, I've been to be honest at that that age twenty one. You don't really get good advice from your university mates on on what to do and how to do it. So, um, but equally, I need to take responsibility for that as well. So it was like an ego thing, is your point? Yeah, yeah, but that's like so many men go like. You're, yeah, you're being pretty hard on yourself. Because, like, so many people do that anyway and not not to do with losing their confidence from an accident. Yeah, but I would say, in a lot of cases, perhaps they do that because... It, well, in some cases, maybe they do that because because they can and it feels a challenge and actually deep down they maybe don't fully understand you know the psychology behind it and actually I you know I'm looking at this was like 10 years ago so I'm looking at that through a microscope thinking because I now try and you know, back then I didn't really have much in the way of sort of logical reasoning. Whereas now, I think I know myself better. And I think, well, X, Y, Z had happened. And I think equally it's important to understand yourself. Maybe I'm just rambling now. <laughs> but so if what you're saying is like you were a massive dick to girls. At, at times, I probably had questionable behaviour, I would say. Like um, leading, like just winning girls and then getting rid of them. Yeah. And hurting people's feelings. Yeah. And then, you know, assuming it didn't matter because we were sort of at university or or whatever. Um And then, and actually needing that for my own validation. Because I'd lost that part of my, um, that part of myself that was able to play sport. And and did it give you validation or you still felt lonely or insecure um, or? I think probably not. I think I was probably deeply insecure for a while, for a long time. Um, 
you know, I I read. I think after my accident, I think if you're very shy, which I always was growing up, I think you have two places you can hide. Um, one is at the back of the pack and hope you are, and hope that no one notices you. Notices you, and the other is at the front and assume that because people see you out there that you're that that doesn't you know apply to you so i think i was judging i was whereas previously i would be shy from the front i could no longer do that so maybe i went a bit sort of to the yeah to the back i'm really (laughs) (laughs) okay so between so this was all 10 years ago um, this was about yeah ten. This was in two, was it two thousand eleven? I think so. Twelve years ago now. Was two thousand eleven? I think was the accident. Twenty twelve, I went back to Durham, and then twenty thirteen to maybe eighteen, I was living in Bristol. And what have been the biggest challenges between then and now? Um, I think everyone has, I think everyone growing up has two sorts of realisations and sort of points in their life that they can see as as quite key. And one is when one of their parents passes away or a sibling and, and the impact of that is your bubble of assuming that things only happen to bad things only happen to other people that bubble bursts and I think possibly to a certain extent the second is as you possibly get a bit older you see your parents as people and not parents um, you know you understand that they are just people um, so yeah that first one because that came off the back of I mean that was a pretty rubbish time to be honest because I was essentially unemployed for a year and then you know maybe I regret not spending more time in Kenya rather than trying to hunt for a job because I was also confused in my career about what I wanted and I ended up basically having a year kind of unemployed what year was this? Um, this was the year before this was the year yeah this was the year my dad died 2018 so 17 to 18 Um, and then on top of that dad's situation came round quicker than I think anyone realised you know from getting the call in that pub in Bristol on a Friday to, you know, spending the last days with him at the hospice was two and a bit weeks. Um, Yeah, and I think that was... Also, having to do that while being... Not having to, that makes it sound like I'm a victim again. I... 
I I felt I was in a bad place because I was unemployed at the time, which when you're unemployed for like a year really does grind you down. Um, and yeah, then, then that happened. Were you, sorry, were you still at that point? So like a few years out of uni, were you feeling confident and good about your ability to function in the world or were you still? Yeah, yeah I, I definitely was. And I was a bit more sort of driven back then. Um, well, I, I was more driven than I was at uni. And I think I saw elements of my sort of addictive personality. Like there was a gym right next to work that did body pump. And I used to do like four classes a week. And I remember once stopping even, we had our Christmas party in the afternoon. I think it was at two o'clock and there was like a body pump class at five. So I went and it was maybe a 10 minute walk. So I, you know, this is how much I needed that sort of endorphin hit, that drive, that need to sort of keep pushing that, I went in the middle of our Christmas dinner, did a 45-minute body pump class, and then came back. Which I think, looking back on it, is quite mad. But um, Okay, so you had put the accident behind you at that point? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I had. And I think, you know, that I had had various elements of um, counselling whether it be CBT or, um, well, I think CBT and just sort of speech therapy, like talking therapy. And I think I, I was sort of, yeah, I was sort of ready. Yeah, I had sort of put it behind me, but I don't know whether I actually had and I was, yeah. And that the therapy was to do with you feeling really down on yourself. Yeah. Yeah, feeling a bit down and also get move, being able to move past the accident and stop harking back to how I was before the accident. Was it your idea to get the therapy? Uh, no, that was also an ex's and I think an ex and mum and... Um, yeah. But you were receptive to it? Yeah, definitely. Um you know, and I thought it was good. And I thought... I I could see that, they, that it would benefit me. Actually moving past. Okay. So you were yeah. ready to... You just didn't really know how. Yeah. And then... Yeah, I think so. And then, you know, by that point... I think in the June, July, I went out to Kenya for a bit because I was having a really, really rough time at work. Dad also wasn't particularly well, so I went back to Kenya. Um, and then thought, I'd, I'd better come back to UK. Because that was all I knew in England, Bristol. I lived in that one, I lived in one five-bed house, you know, with four other very nice housemates. And that was all I knew. And so I thought I better um, 
yeah, I'm going to go back to Bristol and, I, and I'm going to get a job. And I, yeah, I mean, I had a lot of, probably not as many as I could have, but I still, it's an exhausting process applying for a new role. Um, like I was doing, yeah, I was doing um, assessment centres, you know, phone interviews and nothing would stick. Either I would apply for jobs I was overqualified for because I thought that would be easy. Or I would apply for jobs I was not qualified for. And also I was not very good at interviews. Um, I remember saying in a... I had an interview for an executive search firm. So it's kind of like recruitment, but... But more sort of... I mean, maybe you can call it highbrow, but you're dealing with sort of VPs and and that. And I remember saying to the guy, yeah, I'm not really, I'm not really a sort of sales type person, you know, sell, sell printers from the back of a car type. I'm more of a soft sales. And he sort of didn't say anything. He was like, okay, interesting. Didn't hear anything. Said that again in an interview for another agreement firm. And they, they ended the interview there. So the interview was I took longer going in the lift than the actual interview did. Um, what they were like? Yeah, I don't. I don't think this job's for you then. Um, but it's all a learning experience. Yeah, it is. And yeah, and then I'm yeah, I'm also not great at interviews. Yeah. <laughs> Managed to say the wrong thing like all the time. <laughs> I think the only thing you can do is practice. Well, in my case, practice, practice. And, and I guess trust the process that those jobs weren't right for you or it wasn't the right time. Yeah, or... exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, then what, then what happened then? So what So were you? What had happened with the previous job? Um, it made me... I think mentally severe, very, very unhappy. Um, it was not the right job for me. I was hating it. I was coming home, not understanding why I was hating it. You know, I would come home and, you know, be in tears to, you know, my folks. And then eventually dad, my dad said, you know, you, you're going to have to leave that job. So I, again, I had some medical time off because of how bad it was. And then I decided after a week, I was like, I'm going to go back in and hand my medicine, um, which I did. And things got better for a while, um, definitely from my job, because that's actually when I started running, because I was doing a lot of running to cope with the stress of work and actually seeing benefits. And then because I was out of work for so long, Someone made a suggestion that I should enter a marathon and train for it. And this was, yeah. And so I entered, yeah, entered Amsterdam and had three months to train. Basically not really sort of out of a job. And that was my job. And then the rest is sort of running history as well. Um, yeah, so I then did get a job 
maybe in the I think a couple of weeks after Dad passed, I got a job which I was unsure about, but it was exactly what I needed, like a very very easy nine to five, and it's easier to get a job when you're in a job. Because I then met someone at Dad's funeral who offered me a job in London starting in October, and I was like. And I was pretty wept behind the ears, and I was like, yeah, it's going to be awesome. And I got to within about a week of starting, um, and he emailed me saying, we can't offer you the job anymore. Um, and I was like, what the hell? That sort of hit me as a bolt from the blue, and I thought, you know what, you've, you've made the decision to go to London, go to London. You'll you'll have more luck with jobs there. And also in that in that year off, I was on the I was on Universal Credit, which I think has possibly helped me. Definitely helped me in terms of paying rent, but also possibly I didn't want to go on that again because I thought no, because then you'll get reliant on it and no income and fighting for income and getting for a job and you know, fighting for that job is better than having some income at the end of the day. Um, Yeah, and that's when I got the job with Night Frank. And how were you coping with your dad passing away? Um, I was able to... I had made it my life's mission to run either... The London Marathon. So the London Marathon happened just after he died and I entered the ballot and also got a charity place and I made it my life's mission to A, smash it and B, raise some money. Because I'd raised some money when I was at Amsterdam for Royal Marsden. But I thought this is this this one means a lot. And I thought I'll do Royal Marsden. I'll also do run the London to Brighton because, you know, he'll that would have been on his 72nd birthday. And I was 28, and London to Brighton runs 100k, so I thought it makes sense. Um, Did you feel like, I mean, yeah, obviously this is so, I mean, you said the time where your parents or a sibling passes away. I've had a sibling pass away, but I feel like it's just so different because I think I get so stressed about my parents dying. And, or not stressed, but just I'm like, I'm not, I need to do more. Like, they can't die, like I get. Because it's like, I haven't done enough or like, I want them to see me like, achieve whatever or make them proud or whatever. Like, did you feel like you'd had, you'd had your time? Because obviously everyone dies, but it's... uh, I think not, because I remember being very emotional in the hospice and you know saying to dad that I just wanted him to be proud of me because I was still unemployed at that time um, and, and people tend to build a lot of their identity through their job and so I didn't really have that and I then became you know then I got the job and then moved to London and then by that point I decided 
you're going to do the London Marathon. And I was, yeah, I mean, I was training harder than I, than I probably ever trained, um, like 90, 100 mile weeks. And was absolutely loving it because it was such a distraction. And it was such a way to, you know, um, because when you're running for someone else or running in someone's memory, you don't give yourself the ability to maybe give up and you can, you're stronger when you're running for someone else because you, because you sort of think, I mean, it's why some people talk about themselves in the third person when they're, they're sort of mental talk when running. Because if you say, I can't do it, it's, you know, very, very different from do this for dad or Jack can do it. It just changes the way the sentence is. And yeah, so I just became uber focused on that. Yeah, because wasn't it 4,000 kilometres you ran one year? The, that was the year, yeah, that was the year. So the year after Dad died, I did, yeah, pretty sure, yeah, 4,000 kilometres. That's what you said on that podcast. Yeah. Which is... It's mental. And like even... So think... that's like 11 kilometres a day. And so... even, even when I think about it now, it, like I... I don't understand how I did that because, but then I would do, I would do a half marathon to work on a Thursday morning, run 10k back, you know, run a 40k on the, 40k on the Saturday, maybe do a half, another half. I mean, I remember my, yeah, my ex at the time sort of kept on saying, um, you know, you've got no time for me, all you do is run and work and I was also trying to slightly juggle a new job. And, you know, she could never understand that it had, the running for me had such a higher purpose. And she was always telling me, oh, you'll get injured. Um, but that was like, you're grieving, basically. Yeah. It's like, yeah. That's correct. So that's like almost two marathons a week for a year. Yeah, it's about that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, even when I say it and think about it now, I think, you know, that well, yeah, that was pretty nuts. Um, but you know, then I then I definitely learned to. I sort of had to learn how to run for myself, rather than always running for dad because. I think possibly you meet people who, you know, you possibly meet people who their lives are stuck because someone they, you know, someone they love has passed away and a lot of their house maybe sort of, you know, what you don't want is to make sort of the living room like a, a shrine or, or something like that. Because, you know, you you sort of need to realise that you're, you have a, a set amount of time and actually, 
they will always be with you in your memories. But, you know, you need to... They're not there at the place that you... Excuse me. They're not there at the place that you keep going back to. And... Yeah, you, you... Yeah, I mean, it might sound quite harsh, but at some point you you have to move on um and find happiness and and change your and change your life from what it was i think because that's just part of the grieving process because you want to make them proud of you when because if you think if they were still around they wouldn't it depends on where you know them, but they wouldn't want you to just have, you know, a shrine to them and just always be sad and be alone. And, you know, you you, you keep the promises you made to them, but still, you know, you either, you either turn left or you turn right. You know, you either turn right and you let yourself be you let every element of your being be impacted by it or you turn left and say yeah that happened that's that's like one of the shittest things ever but what can I do to make good of it I can use that hurt as fuel to run myself into the ground (laughs) and and sort of grieve um and maybe that's not healthy. Maybe it's healthy to to remember them in other ways. But you know, my my experiences just of you know my daddy passed away, and that's yeah, and it's it's sad. But that doesn't mean just because you you know elements of your life have moved forward doesn't mean you don't care. Um, yeah. Are you now able to feel like to know that he is proud of you and would be, you know, like from that feeling when you're with him in the hospice, wanting him to? Yeah, because you know, and he was sort of there, but he also sort of wasn't. If I think of like the last day. Like, it sort of wasn't there, um, which sounds quite, you know, but which may sound quite unkind, but you know, ultimately he's in an immense amount of pain and he's just not complaining about it. And actually... Yeah, it's sort of come to come to the end of the road. And then you yeah, I suppose you take their spirit with you and and move in a new direction with their help. I think. Yeah. I'm definitely rambling now. <laughs> no, you're not. And since and that so 
in terms of from the accident till now, losing your dad, that period of terrible job situation. Otherwise, has it been uphill from there or there's been um because that's like a fucking tough decade for you yeah but it's you know it's there are things you can always find fortune in like you know i'm yeah I'm lucky that I had, yes, a bit of time, not much, but a bit of time at the end to ask Dad anything I wanted to, you know, how to be a good parent, how to be a good dad, how to be a good husband, you know, and the things that you maybe wouldn't ask otherwise, you can, and you have that opportunity. And... I'm I'm very glad for that and I also think I'm very you know if you look at it that 80% of life is sorry 10% of life is is what happens to you 80% is how you deal with it and I think he would have been proud of the way all of us dealt with it. Because, you know, it's fundamentally... There's no two ways about it. It's just literally fundamentally one of the shittest things ever. And you go through a lot of time expecting them to come, you know, expecting them to come back expecting them to walk around the corner in Navasha, which is where it was, you know, his home. And, you know, that denial period, you sort of, you realise rightly or wrongly that you can't live like that. Ultimately, because you, no one can, I think. And yeah, I mean, easily the most difficult is is sort of weddings and, you know, my sister's pregnant. That is quite a tricky one. You know, knowing he won't meet them. That that is... That's probably the last, you know, um, well, not the last, but that is a, the next circle to square because, you know, we put off thinking about these things because we assume that we're going to feel better when it happens. And actually, the only way you can actually feel better when it happens is preparing yourself mentally for what that's going to feel like. And not to the point that you spend a day in bed sobbing, but to the point that you're prepared that, you know, it's like when people sign up for a race, you know, it's usually when they're feeling good, they're feeling fresh, like, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll do, I'll do a marathon. 
you know, there's no thought at that moment that, yes, it's going to be ridiculously hard, you know, maybe more hard for other people, you know, that you're you're going to have however long, three hours of of pushing your body to its limits. Do you run marathons in three hours? It's the last 318. Sorry. <laughs> 318. But, nice. you know, I think you... I think you've got to allow yourself to feel that before you feel it and prepare yourself for how you're going to respond. So you've, have you kind of gone through that, like, this will suck for me, like, if I get married, when I have children, he's not going to be there and that's going to be really hard. Yeah, I have. And, you know, you just, you know, I, it happened twice when I made the... You know, toast to absent friends once at my brother's wedding and then a month later at my sister's. And you can practice it as much as you as you as you want. Just practice, practice. You get up there, you know, speak in front of how many hundred and fifty odd people, and you're just like hit by a wave of yeah. It's like it's like when you don't see a wave falling on you and. You just get knocked over and 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 washed up the beach. You have absolutely no control. You don't know where you are. You're just and you. Yeah, there's nothing you can do to stop it, possibly unless you really think and prepare yourself for how that's going to feel. And actually, even still you'll probably feel, you'll probably go through that. Yeah, but I think from, so the eulogy and the speech at his funeral and memorial were both okay, as in I, you know, kept, I was fine. And then again, both times speaking at my brother's and my sister's wedding, it's just, and it comes out of nowhere, because I assume I'm going to be okay. And then evidently I'm not. Um, yeah, but ultimately that's life, and you have to prepare yourself for the fact that bad things happen. Things out of your control happen. And... Your response is will what it is will is what will dictate how you move forward and process that. I think. And how are things for you these days? I sort of feel like the time I've been, the time I was wishing for when things were tougher work. You know, the time I was wishing for, that is now, and I'm living that, and that is, you know, and it's amazing, amazing to be here, because I sort of think, if I do get down, I sort of think, well, remember, remember at Christmas, remember January, just think how much you would want to be here now. And you think, actually, yeah, you're right, all is good. Um, this is the these are the times that we dreamt of, 
and these are the times that we you know because I think people can get myself included can get into the into the trap of always planning for the next thing and not actually enjoying what they're doing you know like for example we we were in Austria last weekend and we were talking about you know the car we're going to buy and the roof tent and actually yes that stuff's important to keep the wheels rolling but actually what's more important is you look up and say shit this is this is amazing like this is so beautiful here we're like basically the only ones here you know we we can appreciate this as well as having one eye on the future because if you don't have one eye on the future at all I mean I believe very much that you reap what you sow and if you don't sow anything you're pretty barren crop so it's what you dreamt of in terms of you're in a job you like you're yeah I'm in a job that I like I'm relatively um, flexible in terms of where I work yes I've got a bit of a running injury, but, you know, I've joined the gym so I can go, I can do a rehab program. And actually this, you know, yes, we had a bit of a come down when we came back from Kenya, but actually you think this is what we, this summer is the one we were looking for so much, forward to so much. And it's amazing. Let's enjoy it. And we being you and your girlfriend. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's... And I think, again, that comes down to if something bad happens, remembering you can always control your response. Like, I don't know, sometimes that is quite a, a difficult thing to say to people. But you do always control your response. Um, and you remember, if something bad happens today, will I be worried about it in a week? I mean, if I'm going to jail, maybe. Um, but if it's something like, you know, oh, God's sake, they didn't collect the rubbish this morning, or, or you know, the washing's not dry, you think... You know, live life simply and smile as you do. All right. Can I ask you the last three questions? Yeah. Anything else before we finish? Uh, no, I think that's everything. When you say, yeah, that choice thing, um, that's Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. He's talking about even, yeah, in a concentration camp, mm. you still have man's last freedom is the ability to choose yeah. one's attitude so when people are like yeah because i know there's a lot of that it's scary to be like don't be a victim like you're in control of your life because people are like ah like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's the government's fault or it's this fault but it yeah when you read someone who's literally in the worst possible place yeah. you can be and they have that attitude um, okay, I was thinking of that because one of the last questions is, is there a book that's had a um, big impact on your life? 
Um, David Goggins can't hurt me. Um, <laughs> I was going to say. He's, yeah, the, the, these titles are probably not going to surprise you. Um, I liked Ant Middleton's book, First Man In. Um, um, Tuesdays with Mori. Um, What's that one? It is about a guy, um, a lecturer, and his one of his students that he has a close relationship with, um, like as in friendship, and about his um, sort of he gets slightly unwell towards the end, but it has lots of you know little life lessons. Um, I think, yeah, back in the day, I did like 12 Rules for Life. Um, Jordan Peterson. I think I've probably given enough books now. (laughs) (laughs) Would you ever go and do that? What is it, the David Goggins event that he talks about bad water? That's my absolute dream to do that. My absolute dream to do that. Yeah, two things that are that I would love to do is do. And Badwater, granted, is a bit further, but. I would love to do, Special Forces selection. I would love to do Badwater. And I'd love. Well, there are a few races I'd love to do. I think Badwater is just the. The meanest, toughest. In terms of, you know, the heat, the elevation. How far is it? 135 miles. Miles? Through Death Valley. In June, July. And the what's the farthest you've done? The 100? The 100 in one go. And then we did that 500 miler, of which I did 100 miles. But not in one go. It was eight half marathons over... Three days, two days. Um, so bad rush is definitely on me. What do you do to stay grounded? Um, I think telling yourself I think that comes with a bit of the negative self-talk like you know if you're doing a run you're like you're probably going to give up you you're you've gone too far you're going to injure yourself which and also you know no one cares what you're doing and also no one other than myself. And also, like, I know deep down that I'm nothing in the ultra world. In terms of the running running world. And in terms of the military stuff, I know that 
that one of the things I like about it is how easy it is to quit because no one is, on the whole, no one is shouting at you saying, get up that hill. So I guess those two things, it's probably not really an answer. In general life? Like, as in, sorry, the question's like, in general life, yeah. how do you stay grounded? But that's what you use. Yeah, I think in terms of the thinking, you sort of think... Like, don't thinking, get ahead of yourself. Yeah, kind of thinking thing. you've actually done nothing. You know, whenever someone says, like, oh, yeah, that, you know, that was amazing. That was so far, I just like, you know, it's a new day. It doesn't matter. Forget what you did yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there may be the odd listener who doesn't think I'm particularly grounded. But. No, why not? Why wouldn't you be? Did I? Um, but you don't do it in a way to punish yourself it's more just like um, because obviously that like being super hard on yourself which you probably experienced can like create just worse outcome like you need to be compassionate towards yourself to make progress but do you mean in terms of yeah I guess it's a fine line Uh, I would say it's like everything it's Try and live your life in a way that you are not assuming to be better than anyone. So, for example, I went on a, you know, went on a stag do and quite recently and I was a bit disappointed by some of the other guys who I'd been to uni with in terms of how little they did to help around the house with the cleaning up. And I think it's making sure... I keep doing stuff like that. So, you know, you keep doing the the most tidying up because you're like, you're not better than anyone. You know, you haven't earned... And even like when we're at home or, you know, say, you know, my, my stepdad possibly is quite traditional in terms of, you know, letting the team that work for us do a lot of the work but actually my thinking is, well, I'm not paying them and I'm I'm yeah, I'm not be- yeah, I'm not better than them. Why why should I sit back and let and let that happen? Um Yeah. And it's not perfect. You know, there are obviously times that everyone slips from their their sort of, you know, lead mindset and you know, lets himself down. But, yeah, answer that. If that answers. I love that. Yeah, that's great. Okay, last one. What three words describe the best version of you? Um, Funny, compassionate, and disciplined. Nice. Yeah. Thanks for chatting no thank you very much that was awesome thank you